One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/spoken today. Kickass Tutor Women is a Lyceum original production. You can listen to it exclusively on the Himalaya app. Available for download on the App Store or Google Play. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Kick-Ass Tutor Women audio course. My name is Heather Tesco, and for those of you who don't know me, I started a podcast called the Renaissance English History Podcast way back in 2009, and I've been telling stories for the past 11 years about my favorite time period in history. I also created the world's first TutorCon. I run an online community at tutorlearningcircle.com. I write books, lead tours, and more. So that's a little bit about who I am. As this course goes on, I'll share more about myself, and I'll also want to hear from you. What are you getting from learning about these women? Which ones would you add that I didn't include? I look forward to your comments and thoughts here in the Lyceum app. So let's first talk about women in the historical narrative. There are a lot of reasons why women don't make it into the historical narrative as much as they might. One big reason is that most of the documents we have that tell the story of history are related to government, and of course, that's a place where women didn't participate that much. There are, however, places where we can gather information about women. One area is household expenses, which would have been managed largely by women. Elizabeth of York, Henry VIII's mother's privy purse expenses are all available for the last year of her life, which gives us insight into what was important to her and how her household was run. Women also appear in court cases from time to time, like Bess of Hardwick, who we'll talk about later, a woman who continually fought for what she was owed, and that can give us insight into their lives. There are also letters. Honor Grenville, Lady Lyle, was in Calais while her husband was captain there, and her letters home give us a lot of information about where she spent her time and what was important to her. In this course, I'm going to talk about 10 Tudor women. Some of them are very famous, and you will likely have heard of them. Others, not so much. It's my hope that even if you know about the women that I'm talking about, you'll learn something new. At the end of this course, it's my goal that you have a deeper insight into the lives of 16th century women of various classes, have learned a lot about how varied and different their lives were, and have taken some inspiration from them that you can apply to your own life. Today's woman will be someone who is likely known to you, and that is Lady Margaret Beaufort, the mother of the Tudor dynasty. I chose her for the first episode, not just because she is at the very beginning of the dynasty, being the mother of Henry VII, but also because to me, she embodies the very essence of what it takes to create something awesome in life. She solidly knew who she was, had a deep faith both in herself and her role in life, but she was also really adaptable and quick to act once the opportunity arose. We often remember Lady Margaret as this very religious, dour old woman, 
Just take a look at any of the ways she's portrayed in modern historical fiction and series, and it's really not that pleasant. But there was so much more to her, and she was in fact a very warm, very committed woman to her family, and even quite funny. She was devoted to education, she founded two colleges in Cambridge, and she had such close relationships with her grandchildren, Henry VIII, and his sisters, and it was clear that just family was so important to her. Lady Margaret was born in 1443. Her family is descended from the third son of Edward III, John of Gaunt. John of Gaunt had a mistress who then became his wife. Her name was Catherine Swinford. John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford were together for 20 some odd years. Part of that time she was his mistress, part of that time she was his wife. And they had children both in and out of wedlock. Now that's important because later on those descendants, those children would be legitimized, but there was supposedly a little extra coda added to that that they would be barred from inheriting the throne. Now, Lady Margaret's father went to France at the age of only 15 to fight in the Hundred Years' War. He was captured, and he spent 17 years in French captivity. That was actually the longest of any English aristocrat during that time. Margaret's father was finally released, but the ransom he had to pay left him completely broke. He married a widow, Margaret Beauchamp, who had money that she inherited from her brother. John then tried to raise more money by going back to France. He left in 1443. His campaign was a disaster. He returned home in 1444, less than a year after the birth of his baby daughter, Margaret. And then he was accused of treason. He likely committed suicide, and his infant daughter, our Lady Margaret, became an heiress. At the time, when a wealthy child became an orphan, they were made wards of the court, and the king could decide who to give their wardship to. This person who controlled the wardship could decide the marriage of the ward, and so it was a really valuable thing to have. They were basically the guardian during the time when the ward was a minor. A man called William de la Pole took up Margaret's wardship. And she was lucky in that she grew up at home at Bledsoe, where she was born, with her family, her half-brothers and sisters, her mother's children from before she married Margaret's father. Family was important to her then, and in her family she was given an advanced education, which was beyond what was normal for girls. She also loved music. Her account books would later show regular payments for singers and minstrels. And she would own books in both English and French. Margaret was always very religious, and she translated French religious texts into English as part of her education. When she was only six, she married William de la Pole's son, John. But it was just a marriage of children. It was never consummated, but that would officially be her first marriage at age six. Soon after that young marriage, her family would start to feel the effects of the tensions of the Wars of the Roses growing. England lost Rouen, captured during the Hundred Years' War, which made the English very angry at the king and the commanders. William de la Pole, who had Margaret's wardship, was blamed for the losses. He was accused of wanting to have her as his ward so that he could marry her to his son and claim the throne through her. So she's only six years old, and she's already getting caught up in all of this drama through her claim to the throne. De la Pole was tried and he was banished to Flanders. But on the way, on the ship, he was killed as this extrajudicial killing, and he was 
tossed overboard. After that, the Pope decreed that Margaret and John were still married, but they were ordered to remain living apart. In 1453, Margaret went to court. She was 10. King Henry VI had decided that Margaret and John would divorce, and she would marry Henry VI's half-brother Edmund Tudor. Later on, Margaret would claim that God led her to decide to accept the marriage, believing that it would lead to great things. But of course, that was looking through the lens of hindsight, which can be very different than reality. Margaret did spend a lot of time at court then, and King Henry even gifted her money so that she could buy clothing. Soon enough, this cold war between the Duke of York and Henry VI that was brewing largely over the losses in France, but also Henry VI was having a mental breakdown at this point. So there was this cold war between the two of them over who was going to control the country. This would escalate into a real war. Nine days after the Battle of St. Albans, Margaret turned 12 and she married Edmund Tudor, Henry VI's half-brother. She became the Countess of Richmond. By autumn of 1555, Margaret had traveled to Pembrokeshire in Wales, and Edmund was in charge of overseeing King Henry's authority and wishes in Wales. By the next summer, she realized that she was pregnant. But then life changed again. When Edmund died after catching the plague, he had been in a fight with York over Carmarthen Castle, and Margaret was in serious trouble now. She was only 13 years old. She was alone and pregnant completely cut off from her family or anyone who would have been able to care for her. Jasper Tudor, Edmund's brother, came in and rescued her. He didn't have a family of his own, so he could devote all of his protective energy to Margaret. She journeyed to Pembroke Castle. It was only two miles, but it was winter, uneven roads, and she was heavily pregnant, and it was there that she gave birth. The birth of her son, Henry Tudor, was long and painful and just anguish. It almost killed her. It likely damaged her very badly because she never had another child again. But it's her next move where she really started to take control of her own destiny. She knew that she was going to have to marry again for protection. A 13-year-old girl with a newborn with a claim to the throne, it would have been very messy for her. But instead of letting others handle the marriage negotiations, she was after all only 13 and had just had this horrible, painful ordeal, She rode 100 miles away to negotiate for her marriage with Henry Stafford, the son of Humphrey Stafford, who was the Duke of Buckingham. Nicola Tallis, her most recent biographer, writes that the birth of Henry seems to have given her a new purpose and strength in life. Henry Stafford was almost 20 years her senior. He was a second son. He might have had some health issues, which is partially why he took so long in marrying But she married him in 1458, and that marriage was actually a really happy one for Margaret. He was very kind to her. He provided a lot of stability, and the marriage seems to have had real genuine affection on both sides. Meanwhile, her son Henry was now a ward, just like she had been, and his wardship was given to the Earl of Shrewsbury and his uncle Jasper. For some reason, the king decided to split the wardship, which was very unusual. Margaret always wanted to have as much contact with Henry as possible. She wrote letters, and she eagerly awaited to hear news from him. It might sound cruel to think that she had to be split up from her son this way, but this was common. She was lucky in that she had been able to grow up as a ward with her family. It was very unusual. The situation that she was lucky enough to have was common for wards to be split up from their family. So she would have expected it, but it still would have broken her heart. 
Tragedy struck for her again three years after she married Stafford when her brother-in-law Jasper, her ex-brother-in-law Jasper, had to flee after the Battle of Mortimer's Cross. Now there was no one on hand to help care for Henry. Margaret must have been incredibly worried. The Yorkists were now in charge, and even though she had Lancastrian blood, she had to give in and make peace with the new regime. All of her movements and decisions seem to have been rooted in protection for Henry. The new king, Edward IV, gave Jasper's land to William Herbert, declaring Jasper a rebel. Then he also gave William Herbert custody of Henry. The one thing that would have made Margaret happy in all of this was that the Herberts were kind to Henry and they brought him up with a good education. They seemed to take the wardship of him seriously and they treated him really well. Then, only about six weeks after Mortimer's Cross and Jasper having to flee, came the Battle of Towton. This was perhaps the bloodiest battle ever fought on English soil. Something like 50,000 people fought for hours. It was Palm Sunday. It was an incredibly bloody battle. This is where Edward IV officially displaced Henry VI. Stafford had fought for the Lancastrian side in that battle. And he had to reconcile himself with the new king. Edward had a policy of being forgiving to the people who had fought against him and then decided to join him. And so Stafford and Margaret were both able to keep their lands. However, again, Henry, her son, was not able to come back to them. He was still being cared for by the Herberts. And this time was a peaceful one for Margaret. Neither her or her husband, Stafford, were important enough to be at court, and so they lived in Welking, living in luxury. They visited Guilford regularly for household shopping. They went hunting in Windsor. Margaret seems to have enjoyed hunting during this time. Stafford's accounts list hunting trips often. She wrote to her son, and it was just this kind of interlude of peacefulness for her in her life. Margaret had a staff of 50 servants. And her account books show that they regularly had meat, fish, red and white wine, even luxury meals like salmon. They bought cherries and strawberries. They went on shopping trips to London, where Margaret loved buying clothes and jewelry. And then Warwick the Kingmaker turned on his creation, Edward IV. This is when Edward IV married the local widow Elizabeth Woodville rather than the French match that Warwick had been working on. Lady Margaret made the mistake of petitioning the interim government for Henry's wardship and release. This was during the period that Edward IV was being held a captive by Warwick, the kingmaker. And Margaret acted hastily. This was perhaps one of the few mistakes she made politically. She petitioned the interim government for Henry for his wardship and his release. Then Edward was freed from Warwick's captivity. Margaret's husband, Stafford, rode to meet him in a show of loyalty. But Edward wouldn't forget Margaret's eagerness to recognize Warwick in an effort to get back her son. That period, though, of Edward's captivity when Henry VI was put back on the throne as a puppet king would have been exciting for her. She had a lovely long visit with her son again. But this was all very short-lived when Edward came back with a vengeance. Soon enough, the Battle of Barnet happened where Stafford was critically injured and he died within a few months. And then we have the Battle of Tewkesbury, which wiped out the last of the Lancastrian heirs. And this is when Henry's life was in grave danger and Margaret really had to step in and make some quick decisions on his behalf. Henry Tudor could have a claim to the throne, though it was tenuous at best, seeing as how there was illegitimacy on his mother's side from the relationship that John of Gaunt had had with Catherine Swinford. 
and with the Tudors on the other side. So for those of you who don't know, Owen Tudor had been a squire in the household of Henry V's Queen Catherine of Valois. When Henry died, she married her squire, Owen. It was actually a secret wedding for a while. It was kept secret, and then it became a scandal when it was revealed. And Catherine had children with Owen, among them Edmund and Jasper Tudor. So there was this taint of scandal for Henry Tudor on his paternal side as well, because his grandfather, Owen, had married Catherine of Valois. It was secret. Who knows if his father had been born in wedlock? Who knows? So on both sides, there was scandal. He wasn't the ideal person to be king. But at this point, nobody else was left of the Lancastrians. And that fact put him in a lot of danger. Margaret urged Jasper, Henry's uncle, to take him and flee to Brittany, though it must have broken her heart to suggest that they flee. She wrote, and unless my imagination or maternal instinct deceives me, the great distance of the sea will help us avoid all perils. I know that the hazards of the sea will be great, yet his life will be safer on the ocean's waves than in this tempest on land. So they did flee. And he stayed abroad for a decade and a half, coming back in 1485 when he claimed the throne. After Stafford died, Margaret was again on her own. This time she was in her late 20s and with the Yorkists in power again, her son fleeing. Her loyalties to them may have been suspect. A lot of people conjecture that Margaret always believed that her son would be king. And I even thought that for a while before I researched her more thoroughly. But the more I learn about her, the more I see that she was a pragmatist. And her main goal at this point would have been for her to stay alive, but mostly for her son to stay alive. After this point, too, Edward's reign looked very, very secure. He had sons. England was thriving. The Lancastrian side was in shambles. So she was likely just looking for a way that she could be reunited with her son and they could all stay alive. She married very quickly a man called Thomas Lord Stanley. The Stanleys have become the most well-known vacillating noblemen of this time period. They never actually fought or declared support for either side, and yet they continued to rise no matter who was king. It was really quite extraordinary, and Margaret picked well with him because the Yorkists thought he was a strong supporter of their cause. He was a widower. He already had children, so he was content to not have children with Margaret. She went to court occasionally, but she seemed to spend most of her time at home on his estates in Lancashire. The marriage was clearly one of mutual convenience, and it seems that her marriage was, if not happy, at least pretty okay. Even after Henry became king and she could do whatever she wanted, she was still on good terms with Stanley. By marrying him, she was able to connect directly with the king as well, petitioning on Henry's behalf. After a period of almost a decade without seeing her son and trying to rebuild her loyalties and survive at court, she began negotiating with King Edward over how to bring her son back out of exile. There was actually talk of him coming back and being restored to his titles in exchange for declaring loyalty for Edward and marrying one of Edward's daughters, though it's unlikely how this could have worked out. Of course, this exact plan is the one that Margaret would hatch with Elizabeth Woodville, Edward's queen, after Edward died. And then Edward did die unexpectedly. He was still very young. He was just 40. The country was thrown back into the Wars of the Roses with different factions vying for power. It's because Edward had sons, but they were still quite young. 
His younger brother, Richard, deposed the sons, who have become known through history as the princes in the tower. He probably killed them, though there's not much more than just circumstantial evidence. And if you're a Ricardian, you'll likely take issue with what I just said. Either way, after it became known that the children were most likely dead, this is when Margaret began to think about options for her son to work with the disaffected Yorkists and come back to England. But she didn't let on when she was planning right away. Richard III was crowned. Margaret actually had the high honor of carrying the train of his queen, Anne Neville, during her coronation ceremony. She was also in contact with the former queen, Elizabeth Woodville, who had retreated into sanctuary in Westminster Abbey. They had a secret correspondence going on, and this was likely the point at which she saw the opportunity for her son to take the throne. She was also writing letters to the Duke of Buckingham during this time. This is important because the Duke of Buckingham planned a revolt against Richard. He was saying that he was acting in support of Henry, that he wanted to claim the throne for Margaret's son, but he likely just wanted it for himself. This is one of the areas of intrigue that historical fiction authors have a lot of fun with. Was Margaret pretending to support Buckingham to get his support for Henry? And who was lying to who? Either way, the rebellion failed. Margaret's loyalties were now very much out in the open, and that did not bode well for her relationship with Richard and the court. This would have been a very difficult time in Margaret's life. She was attainted by an act of parliament and stripped of her lands. But to keep her husband loyal, because he had a lot of retainers, he had a had a lot of land. He was given the lands and she was kept under house arrest at his castle in Lancashire. Buckingham wasn't the only one who was disloyal to Richard though and soon there were dozens of loyal Yorkists heading off to Brittany where Henry had promised that if he was successful in taking the throne he would marry Elizabeth of York, Edward IV's daughter, and the heirs would be united. Lancaster and York would be united in one new family. Henry arrived in England in the summer of 1485, and he beat Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth. Not only could Margaret now be reunited with her son, but it was with him as king, and she was the mother of a king. One of the things that it's interesting to note is that even though Henry had his claim to the throne largely through her and her royal blood, the idea was never that Margaret would become queen. The idea of a queen reigning on her own was so foreign, she didn't even consider it. She was content to be the mother of the king who got his claim to the throne through her, but she did very much want to be involved in the day-to-day runnings of the kingdom. And because Henry had been away and didn't know all of the people involved, didn't know all the politics of everything, he relied on his mother a lot. Henry always understood what he owed his mother, who, like I said, had a better claim to the throne than he did. All of her property was restored to her, She was given new lands, and she became known as My Lady the King's Mother. This is also when she started signing her name Margaret R., and a lot of people point to that and say, oh, look at how ambitious she was. She's signing her name Margaret R., like Margaret Regina for Margaret the Queen. But it could also just as easily have been Margaret R. because she was the Countess of Richmond. Who knows? Even if it was pointing to the idea that she could have been queen, honestly, she had a better claim to the throne than her son, so let's give her that, okay? She did stay married to Stanley, but she took an active role managing her life and at court during this time. Henry gave her the title, she petitioned for it, and Henry gave her the title of femme sole, which was generally only given to unmarried women or widows. This meant that she was able to manage her land and her properties independently without her husband. 
So even though she was still married, she was given the right to manage her land and her properties without her husband stepping in. It was also a status that was given to a queen. So that's another reason people point to her and say, oh, look at how ambitious she was. Either way, she was now in charge of her own life. There are letters from foreign ambassadors talking about how much influence she had over the king. But it wasn't that she ruled through him. They had a close relationship because she was the only person he trusted completely. And like I said, he'd been in exile for so long, he needed her help negotiating the loyalties and the politics of this new land. She devoted her life to education and charitable works during this time. She patronized William Caxton, who was the person who brought the printing press to England. And she founded two colleges in Cambridge, St. John's and Christ College. She took an active role in these charities. She didn't just send the money, but she was also recommending people for jobs. And she was continually asking after them. She was very interested in how things were running. There's also this story that at Christ College, she had rooms made for herself so that she could go and stay there whenever she wanted. Supposedly, once when she was visiting, she saw a teacher hitting a student too hard. He was being punished. And she yelled down to them, telling them to do it more gently. Of course, at this time, beating children was expected, so she didn't necessarily tell them to stop, but she did tell them not to do it so hard. So look at that. Lady Margaret is a softie. Also interesting is the fact that she was largely responsible for her granddaughter Margaret's marriage to the King of Scotland being delayed until she was old enough. The marriage had been negotiated when Margaret, her granddaughter, was still quite young. And Lady Margaret remembered what had happened to her with her own experience of having a child too young. So she was adamant that her granddaughter not go through the same thing that she did. And they put off Margaret's trip to Scotland until she was old enough to consummate the marriage. She outlived her son by two months. As Henry, her son's health was fading, it must have been heartbreaking to her after everything she went through to make sure that he survived. She was no longer able to provide that for him. So she nursed him, even though her health was failing as well. She did her best. She was with him and taking care of him really hands-on during the time that he was sick. And she was able to see her grandson, Henry, become Henry VIII. She was actually regent during the period when Henry was still a minor. There was a couple of months between when Henry VII died and Henry VIII attained his majority. And she was the regent during that period, working with Henry VIII. She planned the coronation ceremonies. She was directly involved in all of that. So she got to see her grandson become Henry VIII, and that was the first bloodless transfer of power in England in 50-some-odd years. What I love about Lady Margaret is that she had such a fighting spirit. She stuck up for what she knew was right and who she knew herself to be, which was an heiress. She never doubted that. She tried to make the best of her situation when the Yorkists were in charge. She tried to get her son back on reasonable terms, but as soon as she saw an opening, she acted without hesitation. She was both very strong and very flexible, and I like that. So thank you so much for listening to this first episode of Kick-Ass Tutor Women. The next installment is going to talk about a woman who was an entrepreneur and took over her husband's business when he died and took it to new heights. So stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.